0: стороны против солнца There's there's times where I I can look back at my life, and there's times where I'm stuck in a hole just like that, and it's like, I I need out, I need rescued, I need to get out of this, and then I get out, and then I even start making that compromise with God where it's like, I'll never do that again, God. like That was the, the last time, and then literally sometimes within the hour, I find myself airborne and then landing smack dab in the same hole that I just told God I would get out of. And, and sometimes it's a physical hole, sometimes it's a, a physical rut that I'm going through. A lot of times, though, it's spiritual things. It's spiritual ruts that I'm dealing with, like anger, or I'm dealing with depression, or I'm dealing with whatever it can be, lustful thoughts, dealing with temptations, whatever it is. And I, I, I make those compromises, and I realize I can't get out of them on my own. And so what we do is we go to somebody else. This is like uh, if you've ever been in a 12-step program, I personally haven't, but I've heard that the first step is you need to realize there's a higher power to get you out of it. And so you're stuck in that hole and you're like, I can't get out of this on my own. I need somebody to help me get out of this. And then you get yourself out of it just to find yourself down the road in the exact same situation. And that's what we're gonna see in our passage this morning as we're going through the Old Testament and we're coming upon Judges right now. And we're gonna see this cycle that is repeated in the book of Judges where the people are, they're, they're rebelling against God and then God, because of their rebellion, allows them to go into an oppression to a foreign nation. And so then they're in this oppression for an amount of time and they cry out to God because they can't save themselves. And so they cry out to God, and God sends a judge to deliver them. And they get out of it. And, you know, it's like things are great while they're under the rule of the judge. And it's like, man, we're now on cloud nine. Everything's good. Yeehaw. And then you find yourself back in that cycle. That judge dies, and they start rebelling against God again. Because they disobey God, he repeats the cycle And so that's what we're going to see as we are in the book of Judges. So if you want to open there, um, we're also going to be in Romans chapter 7, if you'd like to be in that chapter as well. But we're going to start out just by opening up in a word of God, and then we'll look at what Judges covers. So Father God, we just come before you. And God, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that as Justin and Trent so beautifully saying that, we are yours And so God, I just pray that this morning as we open up our hearts and our minds to you, may we hear your message and God, may we just grow in our desire to live for you. So God, I just pray that you speak to us this morning and that we respond to what you're calling us to do. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this, amen. So what we see again in the book of Judges, we just finished Joshua. So the history has been that Israel is entering into the promised land, and that's what Joshua does. He delivers them into the promised land, what God, or not God, what Moses was not able to do, Joshua does. He, he delivers them into the promised land, but we see this command that God gives to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 18. He says that they may not teach you, so they're they're supposed to, right before this, it says, when you enter into the promised land, drive out entirely the foreign nations because the promised land is currently occupied. And so God tells them, drive these nations out because they will teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. And so God is telling them, drive them out so that they don't do that. And the problem that we see right when you open up the book of Judges is you, Judges chapter 1, it says Joshua died. And so the Israelites went to God and said, who is going to lead us? And he says, the tribe of Judah, go out and conquer this land. And then it goes through all the tribes. And you start seeing in Judges chapter 1, this repetitive statement. They did not drive out all the foreign nations. Throughout Judges 1, you see Benjamin. They went and they conquered, but they did not drive out all the foreign nations. Levi, or not Levi, they didn't have any land. Simeon went and they drove out, but not everyone. And God just warned them in Deuteronomy 20. Remember, this is the Moses giving his final farewell statement to the Israelites. And he is saying, when you enter in, drive them all the way out. And right away, we see, they come in, they conquer, but they don't entirely drive out these nations. And that starts the cycle that we see in the book of Judges. So the book of Judges, it's named Judges, and it is based on the judges that God sends to deliver the Israelites out of this oppression. And what a judge is, is a judge is a military deliverer. It's not like a judge that we have today where they sit up on their their throne or whatever you want to call it, and you come and present your case to them. But they were a military deliverer who would come in and drive out the oppressive nation, and then they would rule the people of Israel as well. So they were a military deliverer, they were a national ruler, they were spiritual rulers at the time. They were the ones that God sent and they are who the book is named after. The author, we don't really know who, it's anonymous, but a lot of scholars and uh, commentaries give it to Samuel, who is the last judge that we have. It spans about 300 years. From 1380, where the death of Joshua, all the way to 1045 B.C., the birth of Samuel. That is how much the book covers. We have 13 judges that are talked about in the book of Judges. There's a lot of stories about them. It's probably, honestly, one of my favorite reads in the Old Testament because of the action that goes on. Like you have guys coming in and they are just wiping people out. I mean, it is like if they could legitimately make a movie about this, I would go watch it. I would be thrilled if like Hollywood would just convert to Christianity, give all their resources to accurately and biblically portraying the stories that happen here. But a couple of the judges that we have that are kind of well-known, these are also some of my favorites. You have Ehud. He's a left-handed judge. The reason he's my favorite is because he goes to meet the king in his chambers, he pulls out a dagger that is hidden, he stabs the king in his chambers, and the king is so big that it sucks in the entire dagger, hilt and all. It sucks in the handle, it goes all the way into him. And then I also love that Ehud escapes and the king's attendants are standing outside the door, and they're thinking, man, it's been quite a while. He's probably relieving himself, and I just find that to be biblical humor. I mean, it's just kind of comical to me. It's like whenever uh, Elijah is going up against the prophets of Baal, and he's trash talking about Baal, and he's like, you know what? Maybe Baal's on the throne. Not the throne of being king but the porcelain throne. It's like, you know what? Maybe maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's sleeping. And it's like, Elijah, you trash talker. I love it. Anyways, you have Deborah and Barak. Who really Deborah is the one that delivers them and she is the only female judge that is talked about. And the reason that she goes to deliver is because Barak comes to her and says, "I need you to go with me." Because she's like, actually, Barak, you're the one that was called to go. And he's like, I'll go only if you come with. And she says, all right, I'll go with you. But if I go with you, a woman is going to get the credit for delivering the people by the hand of God. And he's like, that's fine. Let's go. Come with me. So you have Deborah and Barak. You have Gideon, probably one of the more famous judges who God dwindled down his entire army from 32,000 people all the way down to 300. And then he said, go to war, but all you're gonna go to war with is jars, trumpets, and a flame. And then I'm gonna do the rest of it. So he goes from 32,000 to 300. They surround the army. Gideon gives the command. They break the jars. They have the flame. They blow the trumpets. The entire army freaks out that they're surrounding and they pretty much go to war with themselves and God delivers them. But when we see Gideon, he's hiding. He's in the threshing room hiding and God comes to him and says, oh, you mighty warrior. I love that part. That God calls this guy who is not the boldest and bravest, but God calls Gideon who is hiding. And Gideon's like, I'm the least of my tribe who is the least of all the tribes. And you're calling me? And God says, yes, I'm calling you. And so that you know it's by my hand, we're gonna shrink your army down. I'm going to use the least likely, and I'm going to shrink it down to 300 so that I get all the glory. I love the story of Gideon. Then you have Samson, my favorite judge, even though he's probably the worst judge at the same time. But I love Samson, who was the strongest physically, but he had the weakest will because his downfall At birth, he was told to be set apart, that he was not to touch anything dead, he was not to cut his hair, and he was not to drink anything from the vine. He was a Nazarite. This is where we see one of the first Nazarite vows. He was set apart for God, and yet over and over through his story, you see downfall after downfall, and that is why he is my favorite judge, because God continues to use him. That God, even though he fails one after another, he ends up touching dead carcasses. He has an affinity for women. He has pride. He has lust. He does all this stuff that goes against God. God does not give up on him. Because at the very end of Samson's life, when he is finally captured, they shave all his head, they pluck out his eyes, and then there's this key phrase in there, and it says, the hair on his head grew back. And we can overlook that. I was like, okay, cool. He's not bald for life. But the thing is, is that the power and the representation of God being with him was in his hair. There's nothing special with his hair. But that was the proof that God was with him. And his hair growing back reminds us that God was not done with him. That God continued to work through Samson. We already kind of hinted on the theme that we see over and over through the book of Judges. And it's this theme of, or of rebellion, where the people rebel against God, because what you'll see at the, almost the beginning of every chapter are these words, the people did what was right in their own eyes. The people decided to go after their own hearts. The people rebelled against God, gave up what their fathers had done of following after God, and they did what was right in their own eyes. They rebel against God, and so God gives them over to oppression from a foreign nation. While they're in that oppression for different amounts of years, they cry out to God, God hears their cry and sends a deliverer, a judge to deliver them and that judge does that. He delivers, he drives out the opposing nation and then he rules them for an amount of time. And then after an amount of time, that judge dies. The people are left without a leader and you repeat the cycle over and over just like that video of the sheep. The sheep is in this hole crying out, save me. He's not literally saying that. He's going, "Eh," and help me. Somebody comes and delivers him, pulls the sheep out. Things are good. The sheep's jumping along. Next thing you know, the sheep's back in that hole. It's not just a picture of the sheep. It's not just a picture of Israel. It's a picture of our own lives as well. We'll get to that here in a minute. The outline of the book, when you read through it, it's not chronological, but it's thematically written. So it's not like this judge died and then a different judge took over. It's this judge was in this area and some of their times overlap with each other because they're not judging the entire nation, they're judging certain regions of the nation. And so it's written thematically, not chronologically. And so it's divided that way. Chapters one through chapter three, you see the deterioration of Israel. In the book of Joshua, you see Israel on its high point obedient to god faithful to him coming in and conquering receiving the entire promise that god has given to them and then in the book of judges you see the deterioration and judges chapter 2 is actually kind of this this mini synopsis of the entire book where it talks about that cycle the people pursued their own hearts they were put into oppression they cried out to god god sent a judge the judge died And then we repeat the cycle. So chapters 1 through 3, you see this deterioration of the nation. Then chapters 4 through chapter 16, you have the deliverances by the judges. These are the stories where you see God working through the judges, where you see each account of the judges coming in and just wreaking havoc on the foreign nations. God working through them. And then Judges chapter 17 through 21, you have the depravity of the nation. Some of the darkest moments in Israel's history occur there. Some one of the stories I think is Judges chapter 20 is dark, dark stuff. But we see through it all God is working and God is at hand. And then the last thing we have here, the typologies, it's in the Judges. You see Christ portrayed in the judges where they are the saviors they are the rulers they are the deliverers and they are the spiritual leaders and so that's kind of where we're going to look now as really the main point of this entire series is to see where does jesus fall into the old testament where do we see him in these stories and these these accounts and how do they apply to us how how can i read this and see myself here, and I'll tell you, Judges probably hits me harder than any other book in the Old Testament, because it screams my life, and I think it screams so many people's lives as well, because of that cycle that we see, that that cycle of crying out to God when we're in that dark moment, and it's like, God, I need you, where are you, and then he comes and delivers us, he, he brings us out of our bondage and we have a moment of euphoria where we're happy and we're excited and we're like, God, rock on, you're king of the world. And then we start feeling that slight tug on our heart towards what we want, where we don't trust in the Lord, but we trust in our own desires. And so then we start giving ourselves over to that. That thing that we just were freed from and we said, it leaves a nasty taste in my mouth, but yet I'm going to go back to that. And I'm going to fall prey to that again. The cycle that we see in Judges is the same cycle that we see in our lives every single day almost. That I need to be delivered. I cannot help myself. I'm in this oppression, so I'm going to cry out to God, but then I repeat it. Maybe, maybe this sounds familiar to you. You can, uh, pull, you can relate to this. Because as, as good Christian people, we don't really want to do that, but we still fall prey to it. Because if, if I were to ask you, who do you pretty much guarantee out of all history, when you get to heaven, who do you think would be there? I mean, you might think of your own spiritual mentors, of that person that you looked up to. You are going to think Jesus, the Sunday school answer. But I'm pretty sure you would think Paul. I mean, he wrote a vast majority of the New Testament. And yet here he says in Romans chapter 7, after receiving grace, after already giving his life to Christ, being transformed, look at the struggle that he goes through. And don't tell me you don't see the same struggle in your own life. He says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I say I'm never going to do that again, and yet I come back and I do it again. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Because here Paul is saying, I have been that new creation, I have been redeemed, I've been set free, so it's no longer me doing it, but there is that sin nature that I continue to struggle with inside of me that keeps rearing its ugly head. So then he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I want to never swear. I want to never lie. I want to never lust. I want to never do any of those things. I want to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, but instead I catch myself stubbing my toe and words come out that I never thought I'd say again, that I actually said, God, I'm, I'm not going to use that language again. I catch myself being really sleepy and tired, and so my mind starts running and I find myself suddenly in a trail of thoughts that I have no idea how I got there, but I'm there. And I'm running with them. Enough about me. Y'all can deal with your own stuff. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul is like, "I, I try harder. I push myself, I I remove obstacles, I, I remove temptation, I try and flee, but I continually find myself in these spots. Because the thing is, is that there are some things that you can't get rid of. Some struggles that you just have to fight. It's like I can get rid of my cell phone, but I can't get rid of my brain. I can get rid of temptations, but there are things that I have already opened up myself to that rear their ugly head, that keep coming back, that I don't want to do them, and I fight them, and then I just run out of exhaustion, or I run into exhaustion. And I find myself down a path that I said I would never go again. Again, this is Paul, post-salvation, saying, I'm still struggling with this stuff. I'm still fighting the sin nature i am still waging war that's why paul tells us in ephesians chapter 6 that we are in a war not that the battle's over but that we are still fighting it here today i am waging war against the spiritual forces against the heavenly realms i am waging war against the dark forces in this world a daily battle that we fight and paul's saying i'm doing that and praise god the, the the war has been won but okay the war's been won the battle is still going on that i know the end result but here today i am still fighting it every single moment but the problem is is that i'm trying to fight it on my own The problem is that we fall into as human beings is, I got this, God. I'll take it from here on. I'll fight the battle. You know what? This is a little preschooler. I can whoop up on him. I don't need you right now. But then what we don't realize is we've just started depending, and I'm not saying beat up preschoolers, metaphorically. But the problem is, is that what we don't realize is that that preschooler's dad is Chuck Norris. And we just got ourselves in a whole heap of trouble. And we said, God, we don't need you in this. And so we fall prey to that cycle over and over. And, and the thing that we do is we start that negotiation with God. God, I'll handle it. All right, I, I kind of struggled. So God, how can I make it up to you? Because the proverb tells us in Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That when we say never again, it's like we're going to come back. It's a really gross metaphor. Our dog threw up yesterday, and I don't do vomit, especially chunky vomit. And I'll leave you with that visual. But the dog (laughs) did not come back because I kicked the dog out, and Heather dealt with the vomit. Never thought diapers would be so appealing, but they are. (laughs) But the dog... (laughs) comes back and will lap it up, and it's like, man, that is gross, and yet we come back to our disgusting sin over and over. We return to it as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool comes back to his folly. You know, every single one of us is born into this sin nature. Every single one of us battles with that every single day, and here's here's the thing that we can kind of fall into the habit especially when you've been religious for a while, when you've given your life to Christ and you've done the church scene for a long time, is we can get into the habit of thinking, my good works start overcompensating for my bad deeds. And so God, you gave me salvation, I got it from here. I I heard it said one time that trust is gained in drops and lost in buckets, that it takes a long time to gain trust and it takes one act to lose it all. And, and I almost feel like that's how we view that our salvation is in our relationship with God, that it's like we gain favor with God in good works and that is gaining it in in buckets. Like God, you know what, y'all are here, good job. And so it's almost like you can be like, God, I went to church today, there's a bucket, we're in a good relationship. You know what, God, I, I prayed this morning. I did my quiet time, so here's another bucket. and Man, I suddenly, I have this swimming pool of good deeds, and I, yeah, I might have, like, followed that trail of thought, or I sinned, I fell short of your glory. I, I did what you told me not to do. All right, I, I lost a drop. But really what the Bible tells us is that our good deeds are like drops, and our one sin is like the ocean, That when we commit one sin, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in the wages of just one sin, because James tells us that if you've broken one of the least of these commandments, you are guilty of breaking the entire law. And so the reality of it is, is that one little white lie, those justification lies, where it's like, well, I, I lied, but it was for the betterment of things. And it's like that, is falling short of the glory of God. And that is like, now you have an entire ocean of debt that you have to fill up. And so it's like, okay, well, I'm gonna go to church for the rest of my life. I won't miss a Sunday, a Sunday night, or a Wednesday, and I'll do the Bible studies in between. And God, if I do that, then that'll fill it, right? And he's like, no, those are like little drops in the ocean. And it's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll also I'll, I'll serve the poor and I'll give my money and I'll spend 10 minutes in quiet time because I'm better than those guys that only do two. And so I'm really going to give myself to you, God, and my good behavior will win my favor with you again. And it's like, no, those are drops in the ocean. They're not filling it. We cannot deliver ourselves, And that's what we see in the book of Judges, that they're not able to deliver themselves. They are in oppression and they are unable to free themselves. They need somebody else to come in and deliver them because they've rebelled against God. And we too have rebelled against God. We are in a total depraved state. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God. There is no amount of good things we can do. There's one thing that we can do to be in right standing with God. And it's found in Judges chapter 6 verse 7 and it's it's repeated through each account of the judges, but I chose this one. Judges chapter 6 verse 7. It says, "When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord because of their oppression, There is one thing you can do that will make you right with God. One thing that will suddenly bring the rain from heaven and fill the entire ocean with all your debt that is now wiped away. And it is you cry out to God. That you see, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot deliver myself from this situation. I need somebody to come in and help me And what we do or what happens when we cry out to God is he hears us and he delivers us. Nobody in that Israel time was gonna be able to be like, you know what, I just tried harder and suddenly I found myself free from the Midianites or the Philistines. Instead, it was, I was helpless. I knew I was helpless. We as a nation were helpless. So we cried out to God and he saved me us titus i think it's chapter 2 verse 5 or chapter 3 verse 5 tells us that very thing he saved us not because of any works that we have done but because of who he is that he saves us so we call out to god in psalm chapter 34 tells us this the psalmist says i sought the lord I cried out to him, and he answered me. And notice those next words. And he delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried. Notice the stature that the psalmist is taking here. Not this righteous man, not this really good person. This poor woe is me, for I am a sinner with unclean lips. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, What a wretched man that I am. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. When we cry out to God, he hears us, and then he delivers us. But there's this this struggle, because again, we're caught in this cycle. Of we cry out to God, He delivers us, and yes, everything's great, and then we find ourselves in that same spot again. Because I'm gonna go out on the limb and say that when we get caught in those cycles, what we're doing is we are looking for somebody to deliver us from our consequences, not from the thing itself. That so often when I'm there, I want God to come and help me get rid of every consequence that could happen so that I can go back to the same thing. I'm not really, it's kind of like, you're not really sorry that you did it. You're sorry that you got caught. And it's like, God, please save me from needing to pay this consequence. But I I, I really, if I could, I'd go back to the very thing. Because what we're doing is we're looking for God to be that lawyer that we have on retainer. Because we're not looking for a relationship with him. We're looking for a guilt-free permission to continue on sinning so that I can, what's it said, have your cake and enjoy it too or whatever, so that I can live that double life. And so it's like, God, I'm going to keep you on retainer. I'm not going to walk with you. I'm not really going to live for you. I'm not going to, but but I'll say, yeah, we have this relationship, but it's more a legal relationship where you're my lawyer. And so whenever I sin, I realize, all right, the wages of sin is death. I don't want to die. So I'm going to call you and I'm going to fall back or you're going to come and you're going to rescue me and get me out of jail. But I'm going to be a habitual offender. That we're looking for that kind of relationship instead of a father-son relationship, instead of a righteous and holy fear of the Lord relationship, where we see, God, I don't want to fall back into this. God, I don't want to sin against you because it costs my best friend and your son his life. And I don't want to keep living in that. I want to die to that. And so God, let me have a holy fear of you so that I see who you are and that when I look at my sin and I look at the way of the world, God, I don't want to live that way. I want to live for you. That's what we're called to have. That is not a get out of free jail card. It is a enter into eternal covenant and relationship with God where he is our father and we are his Son. So now I no longer have a fear of going to jail because when I sin against my dad, he's not sending me to jail. There's still consequences, but he's not gonna call up the cops on me. He's gonna handle it in-house so that when I sin against God, there's consequences because God is a good father who will discipline the one that he loves for our betterment. But it's also, I'm gonna live to please him. I'm gonna live to glorify my father in heaven that I wanna hear at the end of my life. I heard it in Sunday school, well done, good and faithful servant. But I'm not just his servant, I'm his son. That as God, when Jesus was being baptized, the heavens opened, the dove came down, the spirit came down in the form of a dove and a voice was heard. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And now the Bible tells us that because of what Jesus did, we are loved by God as much as God loves Jesus. So I want to hear those words. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I want us to be a body of believers who lives for his glory. That we don't keep falling into this cycle because we don't really care that we sinned, we care that we got caught. But instead, we say, God, I'm resisting that, I'm fleeing from that, and I am running to you. The parable of the prodigal son. He is in a Gentile nation. He is eating what the pigs eat. He has hit rock bottom. Nobody's helping him. And he says, I'm going back to my father, and I'm going to try and I'm gonna try and make it up. Father, I've sinned against you. You know, Let me just be one of your servants. Let me just be in your house and get some of the scraps and let me just serve you in that way. And before he can get those words out, the father runs to him and he says, you are my son, bring out the fattened calf, bring the best robe, bring the ring, bring shoes. We are celebrating because my child was lost and now he is found. When you realize where that son was and where he came to, How do you think his relationship with his father is now? I don't think that he's like, all right, dad, you can die tomorrow now because I want the rest of my stuff. I think he is in a whole new relationship. When we realize what God has done for us, we live for him in an entirely new relationship. You see, God wants to deliver us from our oppression. And, and praise God that he is a God of grace. Because Paul goes on to say, what a wretched man that I am. I'm in this cycle. I don't want to be, but I continue to be in it. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7, 25. Thanks be to God who through Jesus Christ, he has delivered us. And then what he does is he calls us. Now live in holiness. Don't go back to the way that you lived before. But now live in holiness in holiness live in relationship with him you see we're called to have that righteous fear for god that holy fear for god and it's like jesus he he died and then he ascended and he said i'm going to come back and when i come back he he tells us in matthew chapter 25 in a parable he says how are you going to be found when i return because you see, it's like when you were a child and your parents went away for the day. To be honest, I enjoyed those days because it was like, woohoo, freedom. I get to like do whatever I want right now. But at the same time, I did not do whatever I wanted because I knew that when mom and dad came back, they were gonna look at the house and they were like, hey, we need you to do the laundry. We need you to dust. We need you to, what? they were slave drivers. It was everything. They told me, do it all. Not really, but they did give me chores to do. And I knew mom and dad were coming back. I didn't know when, but I knew there was gonna be a time. And so what I did is I did what they entrusted me with so that when they came back, I wasn't fearing death, but I wanted them to be pleased. Oh, Andy, the house looks great. You did so good. We're so happy that we could entrust you with this and you were faithful with it. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells us the parable of the virgins who on the bridegroom, he had gone away and they had 10 lamps and five of them brought oil and five of them didn't. And then in the middle of the night, the bridegroom was returning and the five who brought oil, they were prepared. They had done what Jesus or what the bridegroom had told them to do. But then there were the five who didn't. And so they were scrambling around, give us some of your oil. And they were like, you should have done that before it was too late. You are called to get your life right with God before it's too late. Don't be living this religious cycle of I'm gonna do the religious thing so I can do the party thing or do the world thing. Give your life over to him wholly. Live in a holy fear for him. Surrender everything over to God. And when you do, he will deliver you And then you will find the abundant life that God is calling you to be a part of. Because John 10.10 tells us the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came so that he can give us life and life abundantly. So many people aren't finding that abundant life because they're like, okay, I got Jesus as my lawyer, but I'm going to keep living life how I want. And you're torn between the both and it is driving you crazy. And what Jesus says is, I came to be your savior. I came to bring you into connection with the father so that you can live for him. Surrender it all over to him and live in that holy fear for him. And then you will find that abundant life. Father God, thank you for delivering us. And God, thank you for being a God of patience, a God of second, third and millionth chances. God, that we all have not just fallen short, but we continue to fall short and your grace covers it all. But God, at the same time, we can fall into the habit of seeking after our own desires and not living for you. And so God, I just pray that you work in each one of our hearts, be it that person that gave their life to you decades ago, God, help us live for you even more and more that we surrender everything over to you. And then God, if there be anybody here who just has that, you're my lawyer. Yeah, I got out of jail, but I'm not living for you. God, convict them of that. Work in their hearts so that they see that you're calling them to so much more. And then God, if there be anybody here who is in oppression, May they do as the psalmist says. May they seek you out. May they see their poorness and their depravity and see that you are their only deliverance. And may they cry out to you. May we all do that. Cry out to you as we close out this service with this song. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray that. Amen.